jazz is not there. It just sucks. Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of Deuze Vlog, a series of interviews, conversations with scholars in the field of media studies. My name is Mark Deuze and I'm your host. And the music you're listening to is my band, Skinflower. Welcome, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. And I'll be joined today by none other than Terry Flew. Terry is a professor of communication and creative industries at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. And this past year, Terry was the president of the International Communication Association, overseeing um, its transition to a virtual conference, among many other things. And Terry is, is widely known all over the world for writing some of the key handbooks of our discipline on media economics, on the global creative industries and the creative industries policies, creative industries management, uh, creative industries institutions around the world. He's written lucid introductions to new media. Um, uh, to um, the global media and the global media industries and their impact uh, on the world today. And specifically written also about the role of media policies uh, in helping us understand and appreciate what it is that media do and do not do uh, um, uh, in, in, in our societies, in our, our lives. Uh, making the argument often uh, about how significant, what the continued significance is of the nation and the nation state when we consider the global in our media. And we'll be talking about a whole host of issues today. Um, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, specifically, uh, I'm, 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 I'm really excited to hear from Terry about, uh, in, in, as you'll hear in the interview, about uh, how the future of universities uh, in our sector is so similar to the future of our conferences, considering the role of the climate change, um, the increasing cost of global academia, um, and of course the uh, ongoing concerns uh, with the coronavirus and, and future pandemics. Um, we'll also be talking about um, the significance of shared narratives uh, between the people who make media and the people who use media. Um, that that uh, uh, our future relationship with our media is not just based on truth, it's very much also based on trust. And we'll conclude our conversation with a brief reflection on a topic very near and dear to my heart, which is love and the role it plays in helping us move forward in our digital culture that seems to be dominated by large multinational digital platforms, but also is not. Sit back and enjoy uh, the ride today. So, um, hello, Terry, very, very good to see you. 
wonderful to wonderful to be here talking with you mark and 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 thanks so much for 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 doing this and for joining and 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 i i just want to dive right in into something that is very much related to this thing that we're doing now this sort of online video conferencing and video calling i mean you've just completed your tenure as president of the international communication association and 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 during this time you've overseen this transition from our association mm. uh, to a completely virtual annual conference uh, uh, in your own country, in Australia. Um, um, how does this time feel for you if you look back on this transition mm. and on your year as the president of the ICA overseeing this? Um, I mean, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it was definitely a year of two parts. So. If I go back to late January, early February, the big conversation we we're having was about the pros and cons of the ICA dance party. <laughs> and what, would, what, was, what was the surprisingly high cost of having a few um, bouncers stand around outside, outside the venue at the casino? Uh, by March, that's right. By March, of course, the world changed. The world changed very quickly. And I think from the ICA's point of view, the great merit, and this was you know, uh, led by um, Laura Sawyer and, uh, and Claes de Vries, we worked kind of kitchen cabinet on it, uh, was to move quickly. Right. So we made the decision on March the 13th. And it was interesting that, uh, as you'd recall, the peaks come later in the US than they came in other parts of the world. So there was a sense that, I think there was a sense that uh, it was a relatively early call in terms of where the state of discussion was in, in the US. But certainly, I think in, in Europe, but, uh, you know, the outbreak in Italy had really brought home just how, you know, serious and how pervasive uh, this was. Right. So that, uh, I mean, but moving early, as well as uh, covering for financial costs associated with deposits on hotels and so on, also, uh, you know, gave us the time to really think through what was to be done. That said, it was a conference created in nine, a virtual conference created in nine weeks. So it was very rapid movement around it and very demanding on the, the staff involved. We are getting the the outcomes of it, but first observations I'd have would be, well, first of all, people do miss not meeting one another and the physical proximity. Uh, at the same time, you know, we, we started to follow what was going to happen with other conferences because once ICA moved, other conferences felt the need to respond. And there are other conferences that were saying, well, we'll have the conference, we'll have a face-to-face -face conference because we believe in face-to-face -face conferences. Well, you know, you can believe you saw Jesus riding a dinosaur wearing a, a MAGA hat, you know, but um, your ability to actually do it is a different, different thing. Uh, so, so we're moving, moving quickly. Uh, we know that uh, we think that people consumed a lot more content. Mm. So we said, you know, think about this as being more like Netflix. And so there was an ICA binge hashtag that was uh, very active. And I think also people were consuming content that they probably would not have engaged with in the face-to-face -face context. So it, 
shook up a little bit one of the perennial question marks around ICA, which is that with so many fairly specialised divisions and interest groups, do you get a silo effect within the organisation where people identify more with being in, you know, Division X than the association as a whole and tend towards staying within uh, that group for, you know, reasons where they're, they're presented with huge amounts of choice. Uh, you know, you tend to go with the familiar. Do, do you even think that, that I mean, one of the typical debates of an academic discipline as it matures is that it becomes so specialized in all kinds of, mm. like you said, silos. I mean, it, it, mm. it, it becomes confident in, in specific knowledge areas that its annual gatherings and its journals and its publications don't really speak to each other anymore. And, and, and that perhaps this online component, uh, at least the experience of this year, suggests mm. that people might actually dip their toe into different disciplinary waters uh, a bit more just because they can and are not distracted perhaps by constantly bumping into their friends uh, at the venue. I think there's some of that. I think that, uh, and Sylvia Wasteboard has written about this uh, quite a bit recently. There is that uh, need to fight against the, uh, the soloization because you've got the issue, it's a bit like um, departments in universities that they provide you with a, um, an organisational track, right. if you like, and going outside of that track always entails you know, risks. Mm. Uh, so, so I think there's parallel issues. In fact, I think there's a lot of parallel issues around the future of conferences and events and the future of universities. So I think mm. there's a number of comparable questions that they're facing that... Um, Clays de Vries is described as the three C's. Uh, one is obviously COVID-19. The second is climate. And uh, we were certainly getting some expressions of concern about the climate impact of long distance travel. And the third is cost, mm. that uh, virtually every university will be facing a more resource constrained environment post 2020 that Deglo if you know if what's currently going on is deglobalization, uh, this will particularly hit universities because they they were very much bound they have been very much bound up with the globalization project as as we both know from our respective institutions. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's. Oh, and, and I just add on that the please. the other big issue, of course, is um, hybrid delivery. Well, what follows from that is hybrid delivery models. Hmm. It's 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 interesting because it's it speaks to something that I've always experienced in your work is the juxtaposition of seemingly uh, uh, completely opposite perspectives and where you show how they uh, have a long history of of of, of being actually much more uh, interdependent than we sometimes make them out to be. In this case, for example, deglobalization and globalization mm. that happen in different ways simultaneously, uh, whether online or offline. And in, in your presidential address, um, uh, uh, that, that is now, of course, that lives online forever uh, on YouTube and, and other platforms, um, you talk about, um, um, and I thought that was really um, um, uh, beautiful, that you know, all the concerns right now in this 
um, infodemic as well as pand pandemic about mm. you know truthful information and getting people to g access the right information is 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 of course an important endeavor and 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 you know mm. the fight against fake news and all that kind of stuff mm. but you link it very explicitly to trust right that the truth yeah. is just not enough i mean if if you mm. can uh, you can tell people the truth but if they don't trust you then yeah it's not going to happen now I, I wonder specifically inspired by your presidential address like how do you see the role of professional storytellers in getting Mm. In, in, sh in getting people to to build on shared narratives rather than their own micro narratives uh, mm. and not just journalists i mean journalists mm. of course are the first people we turn to but also filmmakers or even game developers yeah. or ad creators mm. I mean, what is their role and i ask you specifically because you've written so much about uh, the media and the global creative industries mm. yeah absolutely i mean we can't uh it's particularly a time where it's uh, very hard to just leave this to journalists, partly because of the crisis of uh, commercial news business models, of course. Uh, partly also because, uh, you know, the distrust of mainstream media is, is pervasive. And like, you know, populist anti-elitism generally, uh, not unfounded. Hmm. You know, that we, you know, we we find we find evidence of elite corruption at at many points, and uh, simply writing it off as populism, uh, you know, may miss the point about quite a lot of things. I'm struck with the, you know, there's a couple of things about, you know, the the demand for accurate information that I, I it feels like there's something a bit Reithian about it, mm. you know, that just as in the first part of the 20th century, we said, well, you know, we need, uh, you know, a paternalist state to run broadcasting because otherwise this powerful technology may be misused. Mm -hmm. uh, now there's, there's no demand for that, but there, there's almost a kind of a, you know, whack-a-mole going on that we, we try and get, you know, inaccurate information and, and suppress it and yeah we know you know we know that there's always problems with the suppression suppression strategy uh that i think we i think we have a tendency to approach this question from a supply side point of view mm -hmm. so if only we could and I, I can almost hear kant the the ghost of kant in this you know if only we could weed out the bad information we'd then have the good information and we'd, uh, we'd again become an informed, informed citizenry. Yeah. Well, the point is that the bad information circulates in the way it does. You know, it's not just, you know, the Russians or Steve Bannon or, you know, China or whoever it might be. It's because there, there's demand for it. Yeah. And I, I worry, I worry that in our field, we may not be paying enough attention to the sources of that that demand. I think, you know, I, th I think, yeah, we, we have a legacy that deep down, deep down we tend to think of the public as rational mm. or that, or that at, at any rate, not manipulate. We're, we're very reluctant to concede that people can be manipulated by information because that sounds like 
you know, earlier paradigms that we often rejected. But I, I, yeah, I think we might need to be engaging a bit more, certainly with some of the literature on populism, which does address this, but also with field, fields like social psychology. I think that there, there are insights into, you know, concepts like cognitive bias. Uh, probably we need to come back and have a, have a look at some of those. So I think that uh, we lack a theory. Uh, I think that the discussion around fake news, misinformation and so on, runs the risk of lacking a theory of the subject. Mm. Right. And, and how, I, I'm just going to swing back to, to, to mm. I mean, and I, I have a bit of preoccupation perhaps with the, the, the professional storytellers in all of this. Mm. But, but I, I really take your point about not making this a supply side issue uh, exclusively. Um, would a potential solution be in pushing harder in something that is happening piecemeal in several media professions where media professionals are beginning to co-create with audiences. Mm. As you know, Henry Jenkins has, has worked on this a mm. lot from the perspective of fan studies. Uh, we know, uh, especially uh, also in Australia, quite a few colleagues have been working on this from the perspective of indigenous and community media. Uh, mm. uh, collaborative sort of production practices and I mean, mm. in other words, getting people to make media together could amplify or increase trust levels in how the media report on them, whether that's in film. I think or so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it needs to be more than just uh, a news, a news-based strategy. Right. Yeah, I think more than more than simply, you know, uh, I mean, it's interesting because. Um, Public health officials are generally quite trusted, it seems. But if you look at uh, the communities least likely to be responsive to the official health messages, uh, and in Australia, certainly, um, this tends to be uh, migrant communities. Um, there's, there's been, you know, for among Indigenous communities to get this message across, it's needed Indigenous spokespeople. And there's actually been some very important successes with that, but um, a distrust of the mainstream there. Uh, you know, um, lower income, lower income communities, and uh, people who have had ongoing dealings with the health system that they haven't been uh, happy about. So, so simply, you know, a, a crisis always reveals other things, um, and so so a lot of those those questions about how you would how you would better get messages into communities that are you know not either not engaged with or somewhat resistant to dominant narratives. I think you're absolutely right. You need people from within those communities engaging actively, working with those groups, and you need something more than simply news or instruction you, you need yeah you, you do need some kind of co-creation of a narrative there um th this combination of perspectives for me is very typical of your work right right because you you i mean beyond writing a couple of books that are used at universities all over the world where you truly provide broad perspectives. In a lot of also your papers, you integrate perspectives on 
you know, the global media culture and creative industries mm. um, with perspectives on the state and especially the role of policies, yeah. cultural and media mm. policies and, and policies in general with um, notions of creativity and innovation and, 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 and a, a, a theoretical framework that, that often runs through this is, is a political economy approach, but mm. not the traditional political economy approach. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting mm. how you sort of uh, uh, provide an historical background to that, 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 that offers much more than a sort of a macro level perspective, if, mm. you, if you will. Now, I know this is a broad question, uh, so I apologize for that in advance, yes, uh, Terry, but, but this combination of perspectives, right, of the, of the industries mm. on the one hand, the role of the state and policy on the other hand, and, and creativity and innovation and the incredible, incredibly important role that plays in making everything move and everything go. Um, and, I mean, from combining those perspectives, what are some of the key insights or perhaps a key example for you that, that has really brought you, the, the integration of perspective that, that really brought you uh, um, uh, forward in your thinking as a scholar? I've, I've found, uh, always found an interesting and sometimes difficult tension, which is that uh, globalization encourages us towards a very macro paradigm. Uh, it's, but for that to hold the corollary tends to be that the nation state is in decline. Now I've long questioned that, that argument. In fact, it was uh, going back a long time um, project with uh, John Hartley and others on uh, creative industries in China, but the, the pretext was China's entry into the WTO in mm. 2001. Um, and I was very struck by the fact that um, China, for China to enter the WTO, it wasn't ceding sovereignty at all. Right. Basically, I, I'm very aware that the WTO couldn't make China do anything really. Can't make America do anything either. Uh, these global institutions are only as powerful as the states that underpin them. Uh, but uh, globalization in, within China enabled a, a change, enabled changes within China. And I think probably from seeing a similar process in Australia in the 1980s and 1990s, you could see how this opening up to global institutions is not necessarily a ceding of power to them, but rather enables a sort of internal reconfiguration. So that sense that um, you've got globalization, but also clearly uh, different nation states are doing things differently. And, uh, and that this dimension matters, even though it's hard to capture because, you know, you don't, in writing terms, you don't want to come to those sort of books that, you know, a is for Andorra or Afghanistan and Z is for Zambia and Zimbabwe and you cover each nation state as a kind of discrete entity. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. But uh, nation states do matter, continue to matter. I think that was my insight with regards to the, to the internet, that, you know, we were talking about the global internet and there was always, yeah, but, yeah, but what about China? And people, well, China's an exception. Well, it's a pretty big exception. And, you know, over, over time, it would become apparent 
that you know different institutional formations were emerging around the internet not necessarily in the same way as they emerged around 20th century media but certainly in ways that suggest it's not something completely unparalleled in the history of media studies so the you know the national media systems models for their for their limitations continued to point to something that was significant and that connects up also with national innovation systems and right. how different different places have promoted their creative sectors with uh, you know greater less greater or lesser degree of effectiveness in reaching international markets yeah because that is fascinating in a way right where, where when you see governments and states all over the world from the late 1990s up until today increasingly embracing creative industries and the creative economy and, and, and the creative sector as a key driver of economic growth or expect, mm. expected growth, if you will. Uh, but mm. at the same time, as they're all sort of buying into versions of this idea, also very much using it to strengthen or even fencing off their own local creative sectors from the other mm. one, or promoting them, using them to promote their national ideal to the world. Um, mm. And it's, it's, so that's, that's actually a beautiful example, exactly what you're saying, from, from looking at things from both on the global level, taking in the role of the state and policies, and looking at what that does to creativity uh, on an institutional or industrial level, uh, if you will. Now, to extend that argument a bit, um, I mean, in, in, like, like you said, you, in several publications, you've made this argument, you know, almost warning us not to forget the national uh, level mm -hmm. of analysis, not to forget the state and the nation state and how that still matters, uh, despite claims towards a post-national uh, uh, consolation. Um, um, even recently make the argument that perhaps we're moving towards a post-global Constellation where mm. the nation mm. becomes even more important, especially under pressure from populist politicians and movements. Um, now, now, how do you reconcile in your work, on the one hand, this push to look at the global media, at multinational yeah. media corporations and their functioning, at mm. the creative industries writ large, and on the other hand, sort of almost pushing us as as your colleagues and your students mm. to not only not forget about the nation but actually saying perhaps we should let go a little bit of this global and cosmopolitan vibe that these mm. perspectives uh, um, suggest and 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 look what's happening uh, right around us it's a real challenge uh it's a real challenge and it's a particular challenge if you know the largest you know because we're, we're at an interesting time in terms of our field, that the world's biggest companies now broadly sit within our field. Mm. Okay, um, Apple, Google, Facebook, um, they're all to some, Amazon, they're all to some degree in, in, the, in a media-related or com certainly communications-related space in a way that, say, General Motors or, you know... Um, McDonald's or whatever weren't weren't necessarily uh, so that's so so clearly we've got these dominant uh, global global brands if you like uh, I think I had a bit of an epiphany between doing the first and second editions of the Understanding Global Media book and it was one of those ones that 
uh, dawned on me in retrospect that uh, was concluding the second edition. I was a little bit behind on the contract, as will, will happen. But I think this was probably a good thing because I concluded the book just as um, Trump had been elected in the US. Mm -hmm. And this was it, was, it was actually the business press that were first picking up on the significance of this. So The Economist, the Harvard Business Review, so on. They were the ones first talking about deglobalisation and that what what united all of these disparate populisms was a discontent with a, an idea of a global, global ecumene or global episteme. And I uh, realised that when I concluded the first edition of the book in 2007, this was actually peak globalisation, the period immediately before the global financial crisis. The global institutions um, were only as only, only as powerful as the nation states that underwrote them, mm. uh, and so and and to to some extent that was disguised because this was the great era. This was the era of the great convergence. You know, people like Thomas Friedman would talk about the golden straitjacket and 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 whatnot. That uh, there was a kind of shared belief in in the the institutions that enabled them to act, but. Of course, once anything, once you remove a strut from that, you remove a very large strut um, like the US. And uh, um, you know, Trump's first action was to cancel the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which interestingly had been designed by the Obama administration to contain China. Hmm. So it involved all of the major Pacific powers except China. And in China, they'd you know, people would draw your attention to this. So, so it was quite interesting that that was that sort of step was the first first step. And so, so it, it um, you know, present a point, you know, can you talk about global media if you've got this sort of backlash to globalisation going on? And uh, I think the, the configuration, the configurations coming forward will be, will be complicated. Now, we're not going to go back to you know, a world of autarkic nation states. But if you're, if you're Apple and the majority of your components are manufactured in China and China's a very large market to you, but you're a US company, it's tricky times. Right, right. The, um, um, I, was, I was thinking about that because, I mean, to some extent, perhaps, in our field, we are a little bit stuck in making sense of these multinational or global media conglomerates mm. uh, because we tend to look at them from, uh, and it's something you've, you've, you've pointed at quite uh, systematically in your work, from a political economy perspective. And, and, and there is this, which is a very powerful and useful macro level sort of theoretical perspective that helps us understand uh, the role of power in analyzing the role that media, especially global media, play in, uh, around the world. However, it is perhaps less useful to make sense of this complex uh, context that you're now sketching as well. And mm. in, 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 in one of your recent publications, you suggest that uh, next to the macro-level insights that political economy would engender, we also need the micro-level insights that analyses mm. of people's drives and norms and feelings and emotions 
uh, would would offer us. And you've hinted at uh, at that before in in our conversation uh, today. I mean, how do we combine the study of emotions and people's desires, if you will, and passions, mm. on the one hand, with a with a with a political economy perspective and making sense of the role that media play in our societies? Yeah, I'd add a third layer to that, which is the meso the MISO layer or the layer right. of institutions and organisations. And it is, mm-hmm. you know, um, anthropologists like Mary Douglas talked about this, the extent to which our identities are formed by, by the institutions that we find ourselves in. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's another layer. And, of course, the nation state is, is a set of institutions as well as, as, well as an idea. Uh, so, so I think it's the intersection of those three three levels that's that's important and, and it was inter- it's been interesting for me to go back and look at how trust has been discussed in uh, communications journals so journal of communication we've worked at it's carried somewhere in the range of about 120 articles over its history that deal directly with the question of trust right but again and it comes back to this the layers of the um, the discipline come up here. So you get the kind of macro studies of trust, you know, what, what's with the public sphere, what's the future of journalism, those, uh, those, those you know, Russian interference in, in elections, those, those sort of big, big macro topics. Uh, you get the, the classic micro studies around intergroup and interpersonal. So, how does, say, a new, newly formed, say, African migrant community adapt in, you know, a large city in the Netherlands or, or Australia? So classic, classic uh, interpersonal, intergroup communications. Then you've got those that, that run in between. And you had, a, you had quite, a research, quite a surge in studies around... Um, well, not not surprisingly, the internet and trust and social media and trust. And these were very often grounded in particular institutional or organisational contexts. So there's quite a large org com literature in this field, for instance, that may not be so apparent if one works primarily in journalism or political communication. And... uh, yeah, and right now, of course, it's a um, it's a boom it's a boom topic because you know, fake news, misinformation, populism, all all point to 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 trust trust crises. Right. But that said, I think one of the curious things about communications is it hasn't. When you look at literature on trust, you don't find communications being strongly foregrounded. You, you absolutely find sociology, so classic sociology, Weber, Simmel, Durkheim, um, going forward to Giddens, Beck, uh, um, of, of course. Uh, you find uh, there's, there's literature in economics on trust. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's literature in political science on, on trust as well and, and philosophy. In communication, it's often been within something else. Right. So it's within theories of the public sphere or it's within theories of mediated populism or, 
or fake news. It's it's embedded in in something else. And I, I've been wrestling with this question about to what extent does our field focus on truth and as distinct from trust. That the two are clearly connected, but they're also conceptually, possibly conceptually distinct, not least because um, after Foucault, it's always been hard to have a kind of universal read on, on, on the truth. Right. So in this case, if we would include people's, as you say, people's feelings, desires, their social norms, mm. their way of being in the world with our studies mm. of, of truth, if you will, or of, of systems mm. or structures or institutional practices, we actually get a much richer understanding of such a complicated issue, such as trust, yeah. for example, or, or, or we can actually say much more about what is actually the real problem about fake news. Perhaps not that it's not mm. true, but that uh, uh, people choose to trust other things. Uh, uh, or, or where does the anger stem from that fuels distrust? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, you know, and I think we tend, we, you know, it's comforting to believe it's conspiracy theories. Mm. Now, conspiracy theories are absolutely there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I don't know if you're getting this in the Netherlands, but in Australia, we're getting lots of uh, people shooting on their phone images of people declaring their, you know, the UN Declaration on Human Rights gives them the right not to wear a mask in a hardware store, that, that sort of... Right. thing which is kind of it's kind of both sad and amusing yeah. uh, but I've been reading um been reading Thomas Piketty recently his most recent book and uh, and I would say you can probably skip the first 800 pages and get right to the last last part I'm, I'm always struck by this guy he you know he's the global expert on inequality but he must have the the, the world's largest research lab in order to generate all the data mm. That he does, but uh, the data on the data on voting patterns is really very striking and very consistent. Which is that uh, parties of the left and centre left became over a fifty-year period the parties of the educated, hmm. and it's it's the most marked shift in um, in voting voting preferences, and it's consistent across all of the countries. That, that he studies. So, so you've got, it, it's, and it's not so much that parties of the right become parties of the less educated. They can see that, you can see the tensions all around the world in conservative politics around that, whether to become Trumpian or not. Uh, but you get, you, you then get this sort of groundswell of the, uh, those who feel unrepresented. Uh, you know, what would be called the left behind. So he has this data on voting patterns around the UK Brexit referendum. Right. And the correlation between, well, it's there with income as well, but it's especially there with education. The correlation between that and whether you voted yes or no is, is really stark. And so you'd get those things. On the one hand, after the result, people would be on Twitter saying, well, I don't know anyone who voted no, 
And on the other hand, you'd get, you know, someone quoted in a pub saying, there was no one, you know, everyone, everyone here was going to vote no. Right, right. So, so, so Terry, in, in, in conclusion, I want to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, and it's, it's just one reference in your presidential address. And, uh, um, but it, it is to an author that you cited in other papers uh, a bit more extensively. But I think it's such a beautiful and, and important reference. And I just wanted to pick your brains on it, which is to Hirschman. And, and you, you, you make a, a, it's just a very subtle little comment that, that if we want to connect the truth to trust, that one way of doing that, one way of understanding that is to understand trust also in terms of love. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that mm -hmm. really struck uh, me as a very powerful point. Uh, th this, this notion, uh, I mean, like, for example, in the context of the examples you, you just sketched, I mean, people who voted for Trump or voted for Brexit also, they just also, to, you could argue they, they didn't feel loved by those who were mm. governing them into a direction mm. where they felt, as you said, left behind or unseen. And what mm. else is that than not feeling loved? Mm. Uh, 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 right? As, if you feel you're not seen, you're not taken seriously, you're ignored, you're disrespected, you're not loved. Now, how can we as communication and media scholars engage with love? With, with the topic of, I mean, what would that look like? What would that be? I mean, I mean, how can we use that? Uh, I mean, my, my first insti instinct is to think about um, uh, fan studies. I mean, we have a mm -hmm. long history in our field of people who study, but that's a very particular topic. And, and it's often also almost seen as a sort of a problem, like an extreme type of media use, like mm -hmm. the fanatic, mm -hmm. right? But it's somebody who mm -hmm. clearly loves something about their media whether it's a band or an actor or a character or whatnot but 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 i mean how i mean and i know i'm pushing you perhaps in a direction that yeah i don't know but, yeah, yeah. but, but it's it's i thought it was such a key reference in your in your speech and it really inspired me but I, would you mind sharing your thoughts sure i mean hirschman's always it's it's great it's just fascinating his um insights on on so many so many things. I, I think it's, uh, is it being, being loved or being uh, is connected isn't quite the right word, but I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, you know, influence uh, communities, not so much um, people who, you know, go to the, get paid, you know, thousand dollars to go to the fire festival type influences, but I'm thinking about those, you know, uh, celebrities and others who have very large followings on their on their their platforms and what you know um cristiano ronaldo right millions of people my, my daughter included follow cristiano ronaldo on on instagram uh there's there's a there's a connection there's a connection that's that's being being made there i think it's a i think it's a connection that can be easily broken i think the this you know the sense of the um cynicism and i'm watching uh, the great hack right at the moment but sort of the cynicism that people perceive when you know 
Mark Zuckerberg would say, well, we're, we're building a global community, mm. you know, and we want, we want to connect people to, to one another. Well, we want, we want their, you know, we want their data points. That's what we want. Right. Uh, but, um, but that, I think that sense of a sort of genuine connected, I think there is, there is a certain, um, fragility around that. I think, you know, we're, we're just, we're in a very interesting time in some respects that certainly one of the things we're seeing in Australia in 2020 is this um, rediscovery of regional Australia. Mm. So, you know, while Australia is a very large place, 80% um, of its population live on the coastline. Uh, and for the most part, they're not flying at the moment. Mm. So there's a lot of driving around. There's a lot of people relocating to the regions. Uh, it will be interesting to see if this, if this lasts. But there's a certain certain degree of. Uh, it's almost it's, it, it's a it's an. It's a it's a not Richard Florida moment, if I was to put it that way. Right. You know, there's the idea the creatives all had to be in you know big urban agglomerations, which always which they, I mean we we did a project on creative suburbia, and so there was always something actually wrong with that. Right. Uh, people, yeah, creative people quite quite like quite like the suburbs uh, and and the regions, uh, but they don't all wear turtlenecks. Yeah, yeah. So, but there was. Um, but there's there is this yeah it's it's a, it's an interesting trend about whether people want to be connecting back connecting up with people mm. uh but they but they they do this alongside um this search for connectedness on on platforms which is of course dangerous because the you know there's a there's a cynicism that lies lies behind a lot of that that i think yeah we we're, we're not naive to the political economy of, of platforms, right? But there is nonetheless a search for for connectedness going on there that could you know could be the the basis for something hopeful. I think that's a that's a beautiful statement to conclude our our conversation. Even though there's so much here, we could talk for a lot more uh, uh, a lot more time, a lot more hours. So 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 thanks so much, Terry, for, okay. for, for joining me today and, and uh, for taking the time to to talk about, about your work. I really, really appreciate it. I'll see you very soon. Thank I you, hope. Mark. Such a pleasure. Yes.